You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, and can be found at page 609. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You may be seated. Today, we pray for the missionaries that the Meadowbrook Church supports. The Coletti family, they have recently moved to the Colorado Springs area, and they have some prayer requests, which are protection and continuous provision, especially that they have had repeated car troubles and a theft, guidance for the spring team training and workshops, also healing for Anne, who was in a car accident, and direction and opportunities as they connect with their new community. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you that your mercy is anew every morning and that your love for us is everlasting. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins and thank you for the gift of Holy Spirit who lives in us. Lord, please open our ears to hear the message that you have prepared through Pastor Keith for us. Lord, and we also pray for the needs of the Coletti family. We pray as they are dealing with um, car issues and a theft, as Anne is recovering from a car accident. We also pray for direction and guidance for spring trainings and workshops. And for the Coletti family as they're adjusting to their new community in the Colorado Springs area and looking for ways to reach out. Thank you, Jesus, that you promise to provide for all of our needs, just like we mentioned the needs of the Coletti family and our daily needs, because you promise to always be with us and to give us our daily bread. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This is the last sermon in the series, uh, on this series on, you know, here I stand on the, the, the main tenets of the Protestant Reformation. Really, uh, it's not just the main tenets of the Protestant Reformation. It is, it is the main tenets that we see emerge you know, from Scripture, that salvation is uh, by what? By, make my heart happy. Uh, by grace alone, through what? Through faith alone. Oh, that's, that's, I'm like, where's that little child's voice at? It's David. He's in front here. He's like, hey, I'm here. And he just pointed to his head. Um, you rock. <laughs> right. We do something in Kempo where he claps and say, you rock. Um, I'm not going to do that right now. But anyway, yes, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And then today we're looking at for the glory of God alone. Um, for the glory of God alone. And all of that comes out of the scriptures. That's why we started with the scriptures alone, that they are, 
that the scriptures, the Bible, the Word of God, is the, the authority over, it's authoritative over the life of the church, over our lives. Albert Einstein once said this, he said, the most beautiful thing that we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wander and, and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead, his eyes are closed. Now, John Calvin is the youngest of all the reformers uh, that we're looking at. I mean, he, he uh, was born in 1509. How many of you have heard of John Calvin? I just, wow, okay. Um, so, John Calvin, most of you probably only know him by a, uh, because of a th- certain theological term or phrase, which is? Calvinism. Oh, very good, very good. Um, but few of you probably know about his life. And so my hope and goal is to just help you kind of get a sense for him, uh, John Calvin, as a person, as a father, as a husband, and, and as a pastor, uh, who God used in a pretty significant way in, uh, during the Protestant Reformation. So he, he was born in France, at the age of 14, his dad sent him to the University of Paris to study theology. So he was smart. Like he was, I don't know if you remember the show Doogie Hauser. I'm dating myself, so never mind. But he's Doogie Hauser smart, uh, or was. But he, he was super smart and, and uh, studied there. For some reason, his dad pulled him out of the university because he, because of some issue that his dad had, I think, what's with the university. But then John Calvin went back into the university. Uh, To give you an idea of timeline here, in 1509, Martin Luther was 25 years old. He was lecturing at at the University of Wittenberg on Romans, Galatians, and the Psalms before he nailed his uh, 95 complaints to the Wittenberg door. That kind of gives you an idea that, that Martin Luther was 25 years the senior of John Calvin. Uh, and, and by the time John Calvin was you know, 23 years old, Martin Luther was in hiding, translating the Bible from the original languages into German. Uh, Calvin and his good friend uh, Nicholas Kopp uh, went to school together. Uh, Nicholas Kopp preached a sermon that is believed that John Calvin helped him write. And after the preaching of that sermon at the University of Paris, Parliament caught wind of it, accused Nicholas Kopp of, quote, Lutheran-like doctrine. Labeled, uh, and uh, the king, King Francis, also labeled uh, what was happening in Germany and, and Martin Luther with this phrase, the cursed Lutheran sect. So they weren't a real friend of the Reformation, needless to say. In fact, the Reformation hadn't even really touched, had not really touched uh, uh, France, you know, before, before John Calvin was 23 years of age. But he started hearing and reading about what was coming out of the Reformation, both in his Bible and some other things. When uh, he was 24 years old, he had to, because of the sermon that Nicholas Kopp preached, they had to flee France. Uh, John Calvin wound up in Switzerland, where he spent Uh, the majority of his life, the rest of his life, Uh, while in Switzerland, he wrote what is considered to be like a theological masterpiece called The Institutions of the Christian Religion. 
Uh, it is on my to-read list, and I will just kind of show my cards here. Uh, if you were to ask any, I've said this before, but if you were to ask any of my pastor friends who know me well enough, you know, it, it, where does Keith sit theologically? Is he kind of like in the Arminian camp, or is he in more, more of a Calvinist? They would all say, oh, he is definitely a Calvinist. Um, now, with that being said, I learned more about John Calvin in preparing for this sermon series than ever before. And I, so I was labeled a Calvinist before I even read anything of Calvin. So I actually, it, what I believe it, it has come as a result of me just studying the Bible. Uh, in fact, the only thing that I read of John Calvin is this little tiny little book about this big, about that, about that thick on the Christian life. I read it in seminary. And, uh, and that was it. So, so I, I learned some things about John Calvin that I really appreciated uh, as a result of learning about him. Um, that, uh, that, and when he arrived in Switzerland, he, he began shepherding and pastoring you know, as, as a pastor in a church. He met a couple, uh, I don't know what their last names were, but the lady uh, that he met, her name was, I just lost my place, um, Idolette. Idolette, I think is how you pronounce her name. He met her. Her husband died, and uh, and so shortly after that, she uh, she and John Calvin got married. They she had a daughter and a son from her previous uh, marriage, and she brought that into their her marriage with John Calvin. They had a son a little less than a year after they were married, and a week after the son was born, that child died. And he wrote this of that experience. He said, The Lord has certainly inflicted a severe and bitter wound in the death of our baby son. They had two more children who also died shortly after their birth. And uh, on March 29, 1549, John Calvin suffered the greatest of his losses which was the loss of his wife when she contracted tuberculosis and died. They were only married for nine years, and he said of her, after her death, I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life, of one, had it been so ordained, would have willingly shared not only my poverty, but even my death. And so he never remarried. He committed his, his energy and his time to the pastoring and shepherding of the church and, and, and helping the, 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 you know, make, bring, or move forward the Protestant Reformation in his own way in Switzerland. Um, during his 23-year tenure as a pastor in, in Basel, Switzerland, he uh, filled his days by preaching just about every day he lectured on theology three days a week, and uh, any time that he had left, he visited the sick and, and those who were part of his congregation. Uh, he is probably best known for being, being an expositor of the Word of God. His heart and desire is to unpack the Scriptures one verse at a time, one section at a time. In fact, uh, as a result of all the sermons he's preached, he, there's a commentary set on the, almost the entire Bible that he wrote uh, to give you an idea for the, the, what he did in those 23 years. Uh, 
If you thought my sermon series, like any sermon series I've preached is long, you've heard nothing yet until you've heard about John Calvin. Like, he spent five years preaching on Acts. Five years. I'm not going to do that to you, but he did. Five years on Acts. He, uh, I'll just list a few of these things. He preached 46 sermons on First and Second Thessalonians, 186 sermons on First and Second Corinthians, 43 sermons on Galatians. In our life group, we just finished up Galatians. That's six chapters. He preached 43 sermons on six chapters. That's awesome. Uh, 159 sermons on Job, 200 sermons on Deuteronomy, 353 sermons on Isaiah, uh, 123 sermons on Genesis, and he started a sermon series on, on the Gospels, and he, was, he died and was unable to finish it. He died in his 50s, uh, probably because he... He got very little sleep. He just exhausted himself in, in just serving the church. That's what I love about John Calvin. Um, I didn't know those things before this sermon series, and I thought, wow, that's really cool. I want to be, I, well, I don't want to die at 54, but I, I, I want to I be able to serve, you know, the people of God at least uh, uh, some percentage of, of, of the way that John Calvin did. It just... It's just crazy. But the two things that emerged out of the scriptures for John Calvin that he saw from Genesis through Revelation were two truths, and that's it's going to be those two truths on base, that, my, that are going to be the points of my sermon. And it's this, that God is the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. And the second point is this, and the second thing that he saw in scripture, you are not the center of God's universe. Now, I, every, pre, every couple I do premarital counseling for, I, this is the first thing we start with. I tell them, uh, the last couple, the couple that I'm working with now, I, I shared this with them, and they're like, I, we've never heard that before. I said, I said, look, you are not the center of God's universe, which they would agree with. But they said, and your spouse is not the center, or your future spouse is not the center of your universe. God is the center of the universe, and that is a good thing. That is a good thing. And I'm going to unpack why that's a good thing with our time that we have together. Like, God is the center of the universe. Um, now, when it comes to God's glory, because that's the last tenet of, uh, uh, that we're looking at here uh, that came out of the Reformation, to the glory of God alone, what I'm talking about when I say the glory of God is not some light, not some force. It is God's character we're talking about. It is his love, his justice, his mercy, his grace. It is all those things. So one author or one theologian said it this way, it is among other things his incomprehensible love, his infinite hatred of evil expressed in his wrath, his tender mercy, his amazing grace, his love of justice, his boundless wisdom, and his iridescent holiness. That is his character and his, and, and his glory is that all those things put on display for, for all to see. And so when, when uh, Isaiah wrote uh, I, Chapter 48, verse, uh, verses 9 through 11. Uh, he was writing that in the context of Israel being judged as a nation. They worshipped other gods. God told them, if you do that, I will, you will be judged. I will discipline you as children, but you will, you will experience the, my judgment. And what he reminded them of in those verses is that I'm going to restore you, I'm going to honor my covenant with you, my promises to you, and the reason why I'm going to do it is not for your namesake, not for you, but for my namesake. And so we have, we have the verse on the screen, if you can go to Isaiah 48, 
Yep. Um, let's read this together. You heard it read? Let's read it together. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That's where John Calvin got this idea, and this is where I got this idea, that God is the center of his universe, of the universe. We're not talking about stars and galaxies. I'm talking about reality. He's the center of reality, and, uh, and that's a good thing. And there are scores and scores of passages in the Bible that, that echo the same thing Isaiah 48 teaches, like in First Chronicles chapter 16, the words will be on the screen. It says, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be held in all above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering and come before him. In other words, worship him. Don't worship anything else, worship him alone because he is worthy of it. And in Psalm 111, let's read this together, ready? Praise the Lord, praise O servants of the Lord, Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. And Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Now I know, I know statistically I know this because of what statistics say. I mean, I think, in light of this past week, who knows what, what statistics mean anymore, right? Um, or polls or whatever. But, but I know some of you are discouraged about, probably 70% of you, that's Wyoming, 70% of Wyoming voted for Donald Trump and the rest voted for Joe Biden. So some of you, if not maybe the majority in this room, are just discouraged, you're not sure what's happening, what's going to happen. Here, here's what we know from the Word of God, which is the authority over our lives. There is one who does not change, and that is God. He does not change. He doesn't change like the shifting of shadows. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And he tells us, and he promises us in Habakkuk chapter 2, he says, there's coming a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Not politics, not the Democrat Party, not the Republican Party, not America, not China, not communism, not, not, not a republic, but but God. People will know who God is. They will have a knowledge of him. And, and when that day comes, that will be a day when the world will know for the first time ever peace. That's why the, Jesus, when he died the death we deserved, and he was buried, and then on the third day rose from the grave, and he said, I am coming back. And, and if you're ever tempted to, to doubt that, just remember there's an empty grave. I defeated death. I'm coming back and I will judge the nations, and I will make all that is wrong with the world right. I'm going to do that. Like, we can bank on that. Every, every age that the church has found herself in has been an age where there have been uncertainties, and there has been persecution, and there have been and, and suffering. And, and guess what? Guess what? The church is still growing. Like, Jesus is still the president of presidents, the king of kings, and the lord of lords, period. 
And uh, that will never change. And Habakkuk is a good reminder of that. Why? Because God is as good as God gets. Like, like there's nothing above him. How many of you have heard of a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer? Yeah, so, some of you. He was, man, he was an, he's another guy who's a, kind of a hero of my faith. Any book that you read of A.W. Tozer is really his sermons. It's a collection of his sermons put in a book form. If in the 40s, 30s, 40s, whenever he lived, if you were to visit him, like if you were to you know, show up at the church building and, and visit him, what you would find is him on his face praying. He spent like half the day praying. He, and that was, I believe, the secret to the success of, of his ministry that really didn't blossom until after he died, um, that God used him in ways that I don't think he could have ever dreamed. But he said something in one of his books, The Knowledge of the Holy, which is about the character of God. He said this, and the words will be on the screen. He said, since he, that is God, is the being supreme over all. It follows that God cannot be elevated. Nothing is above him, nothing beyond him. Any motion in his direction is elevation for the creature. Away from him, descent. He holds the, his position out of himself and by leave of none. As no one can promote him, so no one can degrade him. It is written that he upholds all things by the word of his power. How can he, or how can, uh, how can he be raised or supported by the things he upholds? Think about that. So when I tell couples that are just, you know, I call it tw being twitipated. Like that's uh, it's not my original word. Somebody used it, and it means nothing other than they're just infatuated with each other, and they can do nothing wrong. Like in this stage of their relationship, right? Until after they get married, <laughs> and then you discover just how wrong you are. But you know, sometimes. Anyway, none of you know that. Okay, so, uh, so I tell them. I said, look. And, and, and this is new for a lot of couples. They say, look, God is not only the center of his universe, but for him to elevate anybody, anything in his creation above himself, would make him guilty of what? Idolatry. It would make him guilty of idolatry. To elevate mankind above himself would make him guilty of idolatry. He wouldn't be God if he did that. And I tell, I tell a couple, I said, look, to, to, make, to think that your spouse or this, your future spouse is the center of your universe, you will be disappointed. Just give it time. Uh, you will be disappointed. Anybody ever get disappointed in your spouse? Come on, you can raise your hand. It's safe. <laughs> You're scared too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're looking at your spouse. I don't want to, but I don't want to. I want to eat lunch in peace after church. Um, you know, and thinking about who God is uh, reminds me of a story of this little kid who was on the beach, and he, was, he dug a hole in the sand, dig, dug this big hole in the sand, and then he would run back to the ocean, fill his little bucket up with water, run back, fill, fill the hole with water, and he, he kept repeating this. And then this old guy saw him, he was on the beach, he said, Yo, child, what are you doing? And, and the child was just excited. He said, well, don't you know what I'm doing is I'm emptying out the ocean into my hole. Right, And when it comes to understanding or seeking to understand who God is, trying to wrap our minds around him, it kind of feels like we're trying to empty out the ocean, doesn't it? Like exhaust, trying to exhaust our understanding of who God is or, or exhaust the understanding of who, you know, what he's about. 
feels like we're trying to empty out the ocean. It is good news that God is who God is. Um, yeah. This didn't go so well in the second service when I asked this question. I'll ask it, though. Uh, how many of you remember Tom and Jerry? Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, there was a bunch that didn't. Um, like little kids. I'm like, just find it on Netflix or, I don't know, YouTube it. Whatever it is that you find videos on, you can find Tom and Jerry on there. But what would happen after what either Tom or Jerry died? What immediately happened? What, what did you see happen to them? They, they were, yeah, they sprouted wings and found themselves on a cloud somewhere playing a harp, right? That is the most depressing thing about, if that were true about heaven, that would be so depressing. Thankfully, it's not depre- that's not true. That's not what heaven will be like. Here's the thing. You will have all of eternity uh, to, uh, to get to know God and know who he is, and you will, not, uh, you will never exhaust your understanding of who he is in all of eternity. Wrap your mind around that one. Like, God will remain the center of reality even in heaven. And heaven is not even the end of, of all things. God is going to merge heaven and earth together, and we will get to, uh, he'll make earth new. There will be mountains and prairies and, and lakes and, and rivers, and we will, we will see God face to face. Revelation, the, the last chapters in Revelation say we'll see him face to face, and we will never exhaust our understanding of who he is. Like we will, it will always, we will always be learning of him. Seed is not theologian said, and I quoted it a while back. He said, he said the word recede is not in the heavenly dictionary when it comes to joy and contentment. Like, like every day will be a, an experience of climactic joy, and it will never recede. It will only increase with every moment that you are in heaven or on the new heaven and new earth. That's not Tom and Jerry theology. That's, that's from the Bible, right? Um, and so, so the, the reformers, you know, when they were seeing this, and, and as they were reading and understanding the scriptures in the 14, 15, and 1600s, they were discovering, you know what, the church buildings, buildings are not the center of God's reality, uh, uh, popes are not the center of God's reality, not even the church is the center of God's reality. The center of God's reality is God, and everything is outside that, and, and that our joy and our contentment uh, is maximized and found only in and through a relationship with God. So uh, that's why Moses said of God in Exodus 15, this was after they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. He said this, let's read this together, ready? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God is God. He is the center of his universe, period. And um, this leads me to uh, the second and more and brief, more brief point, is, and that is that you are not the center of God's universe. That's good news. And Luther and Tyndale and Latimer and Ridley and Kramer and, and John Calvin and others saw this in the Bible. They saw it. And uh, and John Calvin spent a lifetime trying to help people see this. 
that this is, this is good news. Like, just like, how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Because I haven't. So help me understand, because most of you have not been to Niagara Falls. I have that one on, on you, right? I've, I've been to Niagara Falls. But for Grand Canyon, when you go to Grand Canyon, how big do you feel? Just, just wondering. No, you feel small. Why? So, so why did you go to the Grand Canyon? To feel small, right? <laughs> like, there's something... That's true. It's true. Everybody I've talked to is like, yeah, I go to the Grand Canyon because I, 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 you, feel, you feel small. There's something majestic about it, and, and God is the author of it and the creator of it. He made it. And, and when we come, when we come to, to who God is in the Bible, we ought to be reminded of just how small we are and how big he is, and that's good news. Like when my father died, like unexpectedly, and I put my hand on his cold body for the first time, I wasn't thinking about my bigness. I wasn't thinking about, uh, about how big of a person my father was, and I loved him. He was like my best friend. But you know what came to mind? The greatness of God. And that because God loved my dad and loved me so much and loved the world so much, he gave his one and only son that who whatever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Why? Why, why, why do I believe that? Because God is a big God. The nations will fade, but God will remain God. And his word, the scriptures, the Bible is true. Like there's a verse I quoted in my Facebook thing, and, I, and it's from Isaiah, and it basically says, you know, uh, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands, what? Forever. Forever. And, and that, that will never change. That will never change. We were made in the image of God. We bear his image. We, therefore, we exist for him. Like when you go to a, an art gallery, Every piece of art that you see tells you something of the artist, but it is not an exact representation of the artist, is it? I mean, good art isn't anyway. Um, it's telling us something about the artist. It's telling something that's about the character of that artist. Mother Teresa, uh, reflecting about, uh, upon herself, said this, and this is so good. She said, No one thinks of the pen while reading the letter. They only want to know the mind of the person who wrote the letter. That's exactly what I am in God's hand, a little pencil. <laughs> right? Like, like when there were six months uh, that, my, that Roima and I were separated because she was in Myanmar for her fiancé visa and, and the internet wasn't as stellar as it is today um, in terms of what you can do with it. So we wrote letters and I promise you that every time, and it took weeks for a letter to get to her and for and sometimes longer than several weeks for, it to get, for a letter from Roy Ma to get to me. And when I received a letter from my fiance at the time, do you think I was thinking about what instrument she used to write that thing? No. I was thinking about her, her soul, her heart, her mind, what did she think of me, what she was doing. And guess what? I didn't read it once. I didn't read it twice. I read it dozens of times, right? Why? Because of who wrote it. We are, 
we are God's letter. Um, he, uh, or we are his, his, his little pencil, and, and he is telling us something about himself, not just in the fact that we bear his image, but in the rest of creation. We exist for him. And that's why Romans chapter 11 is such a, an appropriate passage, especially, especially this week after, after the crazy elections. Um, I'm, I say after because I, I, who knows? Anyway, but Romans 11, I'm not getting into that. Um, let's read this together. Ready? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Right? Amen. Like, that's not changing terms of who God is. And the reason why our world puts man at the center and the reason why politics are the way that they are and the reason why the media is the way that it is and the reason why the world is the way that it is is because we live in a world that are filled with dead men and women walking. Spiritually dead men and women walking. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, you were dead and you were what? How dead is dead? You remember this, right? How dead is dead? Dead, right? Dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work at the sun in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, we were all part of that at one time, those of us who placed our faith and trust in Jesus, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But I love verse 4. Verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, the words are not on the screen, you'll have to look it up, but it says, but God, being rich in mercy, even though we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. It's the greatest news in the universe. Why did he do it? Because of his love for us. And, it, and, 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 and how did we receive it? By grace, not because of anything we've done. Through faith. Through faith in what? Ourselves? No, in Jesus the one who lived perfectly as a, the perfect both human and God in flesh. That's the next sermon series when we talk about Advent. That, that, that you receive the grace of God by faith in Christ alone. For whose glory? For God's glory. For God's glory. And why did God choose to do it this way? not to make a name for ourselves, but for him, for his name's sake. And so through the sermon series, we looked at the scriptures. The scriptures alone are the authority of the word of, uh, over the church and the life of the Christian. That it is grace alone that salvation is given as a gift by God to us, that we receive it with open hands, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. When Martin Luther protested his, you know, against the Roman Catholic Church of his day, he protested because the church replaced was replaced um, in the place of God. Like God was removed and the church was placed as the center. And he said, that is not what the scriptures teach. God is the center. He is the center of, uh, of religion, uh, of true religion. And John Calvin 
made it his life mission to show that the great theme of the Bible is the glory of God from cover to cover. And this is why it's the fifth and final tenet of the Protestant Reformation, to the glory of God alone, period. Not me, not popes, not councils, not buildings, but God alone. But God alone. You know, when you think of John Calvin, some of you were thinking of, you know, Calvinism, which came after his, you know, that, the, that coin was coined, or that phrase was coined after his death. And the tenets of Calvinism, or it's called doc, the doctrines of grace, man is totally depraved, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Go home, look that up, lose sleep over it if you want, or talk to me. I'd be happy to talk to you. That's a whole other conversation. But, but few know about his life. He said something about pastors, and I'm going to end with this. He, he said something to pastors. In one of his sermons in Deuteronomy, he spoke specifically to pastors. But for those of you who lead a life group and facilitate Bible study, if you're a parent, I think this applies to you too. If you're a dad or a mom, if you're a grandparent, this applies to you. And, and you can fill in the blank. I mean, he, he was speaking specifically to pastors when he said, let the pastor, but let the parent, let, let the life group leader, let the one who's leading Bible study, let them constrain all the power, glory, and excellence of the world to give place to and to obey the divine majesty of this word. Let them enjoin everyone by it. From the highest to the lowest, let them edify the body of Christ. Now, I love this line. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pastor the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if necessary, but let them do all according to the word of God. Like, amen to that. Like, the best way I have said this, that I could serve you as a pastor is to give you the word of God and to help you be able to study and read the word of God on your own for yourself so that you can hold me accountable. He said multiple times, you know, when you go home, take the word of God and measure it against anything I say. Because, you know, I've been known to be wrong, right? <laughs> One person laughed, but you know. <laughs> Um, I've over, overstated things, but my heart is that I want the Word of God to shape the direction of Meadowbrook and our lives, my life, the lives of my family. I feel this deeply. I feel it deeply. And, and, and because I feel that deeply, my heart's desire is that anyone who comes in contact with anybody who belongs to Meadowbrook or in our home, find their way in the church on, on a Sunday or in one of our life groups or in our home or in your home or whatever, that, that my hope and desire is that people will hear the greatest news in the universe, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way to have your sins forgiven but through Jesus Christ alone. Amen? To the glory of God alone. And uh, that's my heart for you. And if you're here and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus and you're trying to figure this out, I just, I just encourage you to, you don't have to have all your theological questions answered. You just need to, to believe. At the, at the very least, believe that Jesus died on that cross for your sins, that he was buried. On the third day, he rose from the grave. To believe that. To believe that there's nothing that you can bring to God except faith that Jesus was enough to cover all your sins. Amen? 
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the love that you lavish upon your people. And uh, God, even in, in times of uncertainty and, and just you know, in the midst of our anxiety, even if it's because of a pandemic or something else, that there is one thing that is sure that doesn't change, and that is your word. That is your word and the promises that are contained in your word, the, the, the scriptures. And those promises assure us that Jesus is coming again and he will make all that is wrong with this world right. He will bring a peace that we will experience that we have not known yet. And uh, until we can't wait for that day. And until then, may we be faithful in being the people you've called us to be to engage the mission that you've called us to engage, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, knowing that you are with us to the end of the ages. We teach those around us all that, that we have heard from, from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.